Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. So this week we are diving into the most captivating filmed entertainment of the last few months with all the most talked about performances and some of the best directors in the business working on it which is, of course, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, which is not technically a movie or eligible for any Oscars, uh, but is so compelling that we have to talk about it anyway because we've been talking about it nonstop for months. And uh, don't worry, we'll talk about its Emmy chances as well, just to keep the awards nerd credentials of this show intact. And then from there, we'll dip back into movies to talk about a fascinating accidental trilogy of music biopics that opened recently, all of which should have Oscar written all over them, but don't for reasons we'll talk about. Uh, But first, we're going to look at what's going on this week in Oscar news. It's all still kind of early days and all about release dates. Um, The Weinsteins did like a big series of emails of posters and images of Michael Keaton in The Founder. He's playing Ray Kroc, the guy who uh, didn't found McDonald's, but kind of took it away from the McDonald's, which is a story I didn't know about. You can't really blame them for playing the Michael Keaton uh, (laughs) card two Mm -hmm. years in a row. The guy's in Best Picture. I know. And basically starring in Best Picture. Yeah, he's the, uh, the John C. Riley of the early aughts. Uh, yeah, like, it feels very Harvey to be like, all right, take the guy who won the last two best pictures, put him together <laughs> with an American icon, Ray Kroc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get everyone like all worried about what America means. Yeah. That's, that's good Oscar What an me. inspiring story to the guy who brought McDonald's to, to, to the masses. <laughs> <laughs> he changed America for the better. Yeah. But I assume there's going to yeah. be like a thank you for smoking dark, ironic undercurrent to this, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, Presumably. I think even the tagline is like he didn't, or the, even on the poster, he it's like- He didn't mean to kill your children. Yeah. Or like he right. didn't invent it, but he like- sold it or something like that like he yeah. took this idea from people but as i right. think we talked about when we had joe read on like this could be the greg kinnear windshield wiper movie or it could be i don't know name great biopic here yeah well, <laughs> yeah there are many um or theory of everything i don't know um but yeah i mean and it's the director is john lee hancock is that correct i believe who so. did the blind side um you know so so that makes me think that they're going more for inspirational than they are for ironic which is interesting yeah um i'll have to see you know we'll have to see what the tone is i just think only knowing harvey and obviously harvey does not actually edit the movies although i think he's involved (laughs) he has been Um, known to edit movies. that's how he got (laughs) the harvey scissorhands nickname i mean a he's very schmaltzy b he Mm. is very liberal and c he is an independent guy right 
So on the one hand, he's got to admire the Ray Kroc thing, but also lament what it has done to our society, right. franchising mm-hmm. everything under the sun. I assume that both of those things are in there. Like, yeah. wow, yeah. what a genius. Too bad it was used for something that has coarsened our culture. I'm and just Michael guessing Keaton, based on... And Michael on, Keaton feels like the guy to play Right, you don't things. cast yeah. Michael Keaton in, the, in really in the straightforward, like, you know, strings swelling kind of mm-hmm. movie. Right, yeah. you yeah. want to see those lines on his forehead yeah. as he <laughs> wonders, what have I done? <laughs> Right. right. Um, uh, elsewhere in uh, things much later in the year, uh, Roadside Attractions is going to release Manchester by the Sea on November 18th. And it kind of famously became an Amazon movie at uh, Sundance where it was picked up for a bunch of money. But it's going to get this theatrical release. That's, that November 18th is right pre-Thanksgiving. That's a prime spot. A lot of Weinstein Company movies uh, open around then to try to go through award season. So I don't know, Richard, you've seen it. Is that... Does this seem sensible for this movie? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm glad that this movie, which is really lovely and, um, you know, the first film in a long time from Kenneth Lonergan, is going to get a big platform and that people are talking about it. I'm a little bit worried that it's almost being pitched as a kind of an experiment, you know, for Mm -hmm. Amazon. I'm just a little bit worried that people are going to be confused about whether this is a a movie you watch on TV or a movie you go to your art house to see. Which is what happened with Chirac, which was an Amazon studio's release, but wasn't on Amazon for months. And I think happened a little bit with Be Some No Nation, where, you know, people weren't... It's this big spectacle movie, uh, and a lot of people presumably watched it on smaller screens. Manchester by the Sea maybe benefits in the inverse in that it's a small interior kind of human scale drama um, without any sort of you know crazy cinematography or whatever um, so maybe it, it it'll play just as, as well um, on TV or on a computer as it will as it did for me anyway uh, on a big screen well we know or we think we know that things like Beasts of No Nation got penalized for being uh, streaming movies right so I yeah. wonder if like if Netflix and Amazon if they have somebody who's trying to talk to the Academy and be like, what can we do to right. get to the place where you guys are not penalizing us? I mean, if they're smart, they would. Yeah, I assume people those conversations that. are happening right now. And the roadside attractions thing, that they're releasing it in theaters, not Amazon or Netflix. Because we said yeah, it's just a Netflix it. thing. Like They've got the cover of a of a company that has been working as a distributor for a sure. long time. So it's a little payola. It's like, okay, we paid one of your <laughs> traditional um, distributors so that you cannot just dismiss this as a as a streaming only thing. Yeah. yeah. But Lonergan at least does have an enormous amount of credibility, right? He does. Yeah. Kind I, of. I, yeah. I don't. I can't tell. I mean, uh, Margaret, I thought was ki- brilliant, but I don't even know if people saw it. Do no. people even know it ever well, got finished? It was finished? released in kind of this brutalized form, and then uh, you know it took forever to come out, and then was rescued by people. But you can count on. Me, he got an Oscar nomination for that way, yeah. you know, 16 years ago. So it's. Been I think a while. he's building up a sort of, you know, like thin red line era Malickiness yes. about him, where he mm-hmm. makes a movie very rarely, and these there's these kind of tortured labor, labors of love, and and then there are these very kind of individual, you know, personal movies. Um, you know, I think the big narrative from that movie will probably be well, one of two things. One is that it's going to be a big year for both the Affleck brothers. I think Casey Affleck is so good in this movie; he's the lead, and um, I think that it would be silly uh, at this point, or really any point through this year, to count him out of the Best Actor conversation. Um, but also, I could see a sly kind of sneaky um, thing where Michelle Williams um, gets nominated for a Best Supporting Actress based on two or three really strong scenes mm-hmm. and, and I mean who, who knows wins I mean who is she beating at this point Molly Shannon and other people I guess but, <laughs> uh, it's March by the way I'm just going to point that out <laughs> but hey, sure it's almost Amy April Adams Batman <laughs> <versus> Superman <laughs> sir step out of the vehicle no 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 hell no sir you need to turn your engine off and step from the vehicle now do you know what's going on here OJ's in the back seat with a gun to his head 
Jackie, I speak with Mr. Simpson. No, I ain't speaking to nobody. I ain't speaking to nobody. Tell him the guns. What? 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 Say, you, tell him. I, I, I know, OJ. I, OJ, I'm going to handle it, okay? I know. We don't want a situation here. We don't want anybody to get hurt. You want okay. to go. OJ, OJ, OJ. Tell him, tell him, tell him. Okay. Get back. That's not happening. Get back off. So FX's 10-part miniseries, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, airs its final episode next week, which is breaking all of our hearts. And it ends this unusual winter that's had all of these people obsessed with the details of a 20-year-old trial, which I think anyone who was alive in the 90s thinks they already knew everything about, and maybe they did. Um, Before we go really awards crazy and just start talking about how Sarah Paulson is just the queen of awards season, um, why are we so obsessed with this, guys? Like, did any of us go into this Ryan Murphy-produced series with John Travolta playing Robert Shapiro with fake eyebrows glued on and expect it to be what it has become for us? I mean, well, Mike, you, you're I, looking at me like, yes, I can't Well, only because I was told that it would be by our boss, Graydon Carter. Oh, yeah, that's right. In which I have, uh, you know, and you ignore him at your peril uh, because he's he knows this stuff better than anybody. And he called me and he said, he said you're never going to believe this, but this thing is actually absolutely brilliant. Go watch the screeners and start commissioning as much as you can about it for VF.com. And I'm really glad he did that because we did we did and it's been a huge winner for us um you know we have our our weekly fact check joanna robinson always finds some amazing kind of detail she to interv- do a deep dive she in. interviewed the woman who recorded the Furman tapes this week which was a, uh, a wild yeah. coup yeah and you know i was in college when all this stuff was actually happening and so i was kind of like busy and sort of like i don't know we were like gen x media snobs we like we i don't own a tv we were the first idiots to talk to brag about that <laughs> so it's been amazing to actually go in and see all the insane twists and turns the the story is as dominic dunn said it's a great trash novel come to life and there really is even tom wolf and bonfire of the vanities couldn't have imagined a story as good as this one, I think you would have just rejected it if somebody was like, here's here's the setup. It's just like, no. Right. It, it, preposterous. Yeah. And then the casting of it, that you just imagine how much fun they had being like, I got a crazy idea. David Schwimmer as Rob Kardashian. Everyone's like, yes! You yeah. know? I mean, it is, the casting is pure trash genius. It's and, heaven on earth. And the thing that I haven't figured out is why this casting is so great when something like The Butler, which you've got like uh, Robin Williams as Dwight Eisenhower and uh, Oprah showing up in these roles, like why that felt so silly and why in this show it felt silly at first, but then oh, it I think it's it, I guess it's time. It matches the material, right? Yeah, that's the true. The Butler is so solemn and ultimately kind of, you know, with all due respect, just not not the most yeah. thrilling story. Uh, this is an insane, crazy story. Like, of course, you get John Travolta to come in and, and be Rob Shapiro. Just like chew as much scenery as you can, because those right. real people were chewing the scenery. Yeah, <laughs> right. They were like that kind of casting can seem goofy and stunty. But, like, this whole thing is a fucking goofy stunt. I mean, this whole story. Yeah. So, like, when Nathan Lane walks in as F. Lee Bailey, you're like, sure, like, <laughs> great, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and I and I think that that's part of what lends it this strange kind of otherworldly, I think is the word I used when I reviewed it, like, quality. Um, I was on a bus to Boston with my sister this weekend, and she and I were talking about the show, and she was like, why is it so good? And I And I couldn't quite articulate it, but I think it has something to do with the fact that this was 20 years ago. So it's long ago enough that you're like, oh, wow, remember that? But it's not long enough that we don't remember it. So it's right. kind of in this weird liminal spot in between where we sort of half remember it and half don't. Yes. And so it's kind of plays like a dream that's weird. And then you have these actors who we remember from other things 20 years ago with a birdcage or Friends or <laughs> right. Pulp Fiction who are then also existing in this world. And it's all swirling together to create this very, like, I don't know, bizarre 
time capsule that I just yeah. cannot stop watching. And that is not <laughs> what any of us, I don't think, thought the show was going to be when we found out Ryan Murphy was involved. I mean, he didn't create it or write it, but, you know. I, his I, name is very high in yeah, the credits. I thought it was going to be fun camp. Oh, Selma Blair's playing Chris Jenner and um, Connie Britton is Faye Resnick. Oh, sure, that'll be funny. But it's so much more than that. And it yeah. actually has a real darkness and depth to it that um, is fascinating. When you watch uh, David Schwimmer as Robert Kardashian kind of have this crisis of the soul in the later episodes when he realizes that his friend definitely killed his wife. And it's hard breaking like you're watching yes. Ross from Friends knowing that yeah. this is the summer of 95 like Friends was blowing up and here he is playing Robert Kardashian it's that exact well, like parallelism the, the writing and and directing is really very strong mm-hmm. you know and they and they actually do a great job of rounding out every character um also by the way the way that they address race i think is very, to me seems extremely interesting and kind of mature Right. Yeah. Because they're not shying away from the fact that there was a lot of like straight up race baiting going on. And by the way, you know, Johnny Cochran was doing everything possible to defend a guy who almost definitely killed two people. Right. Um, and, who, and who the show makes clear that the people in the prosecution, like on some level, knew that. Like they yeah. were all pretty aware the way that the whole rest of the country was. And especially in, in the episode that aired on Tuesday night, that comes up to a level that's like really bordering on reckless with with Johnny Cocker and kind of basically threatening to incite a riot. But then there's also a scene in the bedroom where you realize that, you know, this is not about OJ anymore for him. This is about finally exposing the LAPD and police in general as racist assholes who like kill black people for no reason and so he's right there so your your sympathies are always kind of conflicted in a really great you know mature way and and it's nice to see uh these stories being told in shades rather than in kind of like all right here's a good guy here's a bad guy everybody in this thing is, has has yeah. problems and you t- know talking about the direction even though it's these white guys names at the top Ryan Murphy and then uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski who created it they've had among the directors who've made it Anthony Hemingway and John Singleton who are two black male directors who are some of the most prominent ones working in the industry who have made really you know every episode of the show is fascinating but knowing that John Singleton the director of Boys in the Hood is behind the camera just adds this whole extra element of yeah. knowing why this is so well crafted well you couldn't tell the story now without um, you know, African-American voices with credibility no. at the table. And that's why it's good, right? Like, they they have the credibility to say, you know, I think that uh, that Christopher Darden must have been a very conflicted guy. Yeah. And Johnny Cochran was definitely playing this game. And on the other hand, Johnny Cochran's motivated by very real ideals, you know? And then we should talk about Marsha Clark. Oh, my God. Because yeah. she was just... She reminds me of... Monica Lewinsky, somebody who was so smeared, like such a giant villain, uh, for not I'm not exactly sure why she was kind of like brash and you know yeah, shrill. She was a woman who wasn't afraid or shrinking in the face yeah, of all of these. She men. had bad hair and she lost the case, and so she was like people hated her, and it's such an amazing resurrection of her now 20 years later just like we did a year or two ago with monica writing her story for vanity fair uh for everyone to take another look and go wait a minute let's let's think about the position this woman was in and the the odds that were stacked up against her she's a you know public prosecutor fighting the dream team yeah you know? well, I mean, Richard Sarah Paulson's your close personal friend. So, uh, did you see? Oh uh, yeah, yeah we're, 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 uh, Twitter friends at least. Like, but um, yeah, I mean, I think she is so incredibly good on that show. I, I, it's insane. You know, I don't. Shift. I can't really pinpoint what about the performance just works so well. But it's so human. It's so 
big and towering, but also human sized. And it, it's just it's perfect. It's so good. And what's interesting about the way that that character is written, the way it's played and, and just the way it sort of exists in the larger show is that this is a, a story about uh, racism and uh, race and the police and, and stuff like that. But it's also a story about women in the workplace and feminism yeah. and also the fact that Nicole uh, Brown Simpson was abused and that it was never really addressed properly by the police. And that really infuriates Marsha Clark. So there's all this sort of intersectionality happening that with these two poles of Courtney B. Vance as Cochran and Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark. It's just it's like watching Twitter issues or, you know, think piece issues sort of talk (laughs) at each other and debate and fight. (laughs) And I know that's sort of a crass way to put it, but it's so good. And it wouldn't be as good if actors like Paulson didn't have such a command um, that goes beyond just, you know, sort of the textual. There's something else at work there that just really sells it. You see the pain that she's in, the whole backstory of the husband, that horrible husband leaving her. Um, the one who leaked her nude photos? Yes, yeah. Right. And you see um, also how she could be a complete pain in the ass. Sure. Uh, all lawyers, especially mm-hmm. lawyers in this thing, are like kind of grandstanding showboat. The arrogant person who would be intolerable, you know, in your high school, all go get law degrees, <laughs> uh, you know. But the pain that she's in and the, the, the kind of one after another, the realizations she gets working with um, with Chris Darden... Played by Sterling K. Brown, who's Sterling also K. fantastic. Brown is yeah, amazing. Shota, yeah. he was, he's like the least famous name in the lead cast, and he yeah. just blows everybody away. He's incredible. Yeah. And 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 you can tell, of course, she, it was a totally cynical act bringing him on. Uh, sure. Just, it was literally like a racial, like, you know, when, I think there's a line in the screen. show, when did they get a black guy? Yeah, right. <laughs> but that she actually learned so much from, you know, and then he does get a voice, but they both make horrible mistakes. You know, it's... Anyway. And him realizing in fits and starts... That's that that in some ways that's why he's on the case. Yeah, you know, is is tragic and also cynical. It's really yeah. It's such an interesting dynamic that doesn't just have two sides or three sides. It's really omnidimensional. Yeah, which is what separates it, I think, from Twitter think pieces, right? Because it's actually yes, thank God. <laughs> actually thank God. is. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to turn people away because it's because it's it's addressing those issues, but but keeping it grounded in the human and it's no, incredibly motivation. entertaining. It's and just super hilarious. Up. And there fun. are a lot of cold opens. Uh, usually, you know, each episode begins with a cold open that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the episode. I mean, it does in some ways, but it's just, you know, it's kind of setting time and place and mood. I mean, the, the, the most talked about one is is Schwimmer as Kardashian um, <laughs> sort of presiding over the family dinner table at a restaurant and telling the young Kardashian girls about how fame is meaningless without love and family and all well, that. Well, that's another yep. part of the story is the rise of this celebrity mm-hmm. culture for its own yeah. sake, yeah. which we're yeah. now dealing with the uh, the kind of nightmare repercussions yeah. with Donald Trump running for president and possibly yeah, winning the Yeah, the Kardashians are not at all the perpetrators and, of this at this point. <laughs> like, Donald Trump is... And in 95, like, the, the sort of popularly used internet was sort of burbling into being. And, and this represents sort of the beginning of that, but also the end of something else where Marsha Clark is horrified that suddenly she's the focus of attention for this whole thing and there's all this media swirl around her and it's like oh man it used to be that people felt like that wouldn't happen Mm -hmm. and now it's this sort of horrible inevitability we know that that's going to happen every single time there's someone in the public eye that everyone's going to pile on but it was sort of still a surprise then Um, so it's kind of the end of something the beginning of something it's just pitched perfectly right the one person that we haven't even brought up is Cuba Gooding Jr. yeah and I think a lot of us agree that of all the great performances, his is not quite as amazing. My feeling has always been he's just not quite 
charismatic enough to to embody OJ. Yeah. But then my aunt, who listens to this podcast, hi, oh. Aunt Carolyn, um, she told me at Easter that she thought he was the best thing in it. So oh, there you go. Prepare think... yourself. He could possibly be nominated and win the Emmy. Well, okay, uh, so Emmy. let's talk, talk about, about Emmys real yeah. quick. I mean, it's going to be competing in the limited series category, which is also against TV movies. So it's not going to be up against, oh, hell, none of the dramas I can name check are on the air anymore, whatever right. Mad Men is this year. Yeah. Um, but it will be up against like the Kerry Washington confirmation movie. But so we, we can just imagine them running the table. But when you've got all these actors, like how how do you pick an actor out of this bunch? Well, to, uh, Sarah, hey, Paulson just Sarah Paulson just gigantic. <laughs> Slam dunk Should win or whatever. Touch her at the Oscars. Yeah. For this. I mean, <laughs> she's just so good. I mean, I don't know, like the uh, the Bernie Madoff thing on HBO that Barry Levinson did yeah. with yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Robert De Niro. That maybe could spoil but I just I mean I, it kind of like Hamilton is going to run the table on the, at the Tonys this mm-hmm. year like yeah. I c- kind of don't see this thing I mean Paulson definitely I think the real competition is going to be between Courtney B. Vance and, and John Travolta, John Travolta mm-hmm. yes. possibly even Sterling Kane Brown yeah. like I, I mean there's yeah. you know they're, they're, it's a pretty deep and well, field they, do they but, go lead or supporting and if yeah. they go lead then the supporting is what like a I think what the uh, what Schwimmer? they ought to try to avoid. I I think Sterling K. Brown's big victory out of this is going to be people know who he is. Right. I think Courtney B. Vance and Travolta. They should try to get them into different categories if they can. Yeah. If there's some way of right. saying like, like Courtney B. Vance's Vance is lead because yeah. you know what? it's just going to what's going to happen. I hate. I'm going to make a sad prediction right now. <laughs> no. If they're up against each other, Travolta is going to win, and it's going to look like a totally racist thing, and that's right. actually what it's going to be. He's a lot less impactful. And he's great, but it's not as great as what Courtney B. Vance well, is would, doing, in my opinion. I would call it less racism and more of fame bias, just because okay, the whole fine, narrative of having like a big movie star come in. Because you know, Courtney B. Vance so, is, has been working for a long time, but he's not famous. Like Travolta's Travolta. is a tainted fame. We, let's not wade into those waters. But like you know, Travolta has his personal. <laughs> Attachments that make that could my... be a good um, name for your next novel. Uh, Travolta's is a tainted fame. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. well, he's already gone through the whole like revival thing with Pulp Fiction once. So you know this the whole story of like wanting John Travolta to come back and hand him awards for it. I mean, yeah. he didn't win an Oscar. I really, I mean, he's he's awesome. He's great. I don't mean to suggest that if he wins, it's racism. I but just sure, want to suggest um, that Courtney B. Vance. Vance is doing something. He's operating on like a level. I agree. Travolta's kind of it's shtick. Courtney B. Vance is like he is Johnny Cochran yeah. in every possible way. Same as Marsha Clark. I think those are just like phenomenal. Those are not goofy like, oh, I'm, I'm going to put on some makeup and do like a funny voice. That's There's something like, very deep happening there. Yes. Yeah. We did a composite of Johnny Cochran uh, talking to the jury and then Courtney B. Vance in the same episode and it's it's astonishing, the physical resemblance. It's yeah. like the, the production designer's got the tie right. Like it's really, it's amazing. It's, oh yeah, by the way, all of the production design stuff <sighs> and costumes and everything. Yeah. It's incredible. crazy that they built a time machine and went back to 1995 to film a thing. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It's expensive footwork. By the way, then. Lance Edo is oh, yeah. incredible. Yeah, that great casting. I mean, uh, Stephen Pasquale is Mark Furman. Kenneth Choi as Lance Edo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and that courtroom, they love they love panning back and getting the whole courtroom in with those. Gi- there's like two gigantic computers, and for some reason, Lance Edo has like 15 hourglasses on yeah. the yeah. thing. It's all like so perfect. They somehow captured the ambient light of a hazy Los Angeles day. But inside, yeah. like it's just, it's just crazy. <laughs> Everything is perfect. And, uh, Everyone oh, should watch Robert it. Robert Morris is uh, Dominic Dunn. Yes, of course, he's very good. Yeah. And, the, and the costuming on him, it's just uncanny. It's actually yeah. freaky. As, yeah. as someone who used to work with old Dominic, if somehow you're listening to this and haven't yet watched the series, um, obviously yeah. we've hopefully convinced going you. Going on and on here. Is this more, is a sponsored <laughs> uh, episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah hopefully uh, it's more interesting than basically any movie that's come out so far this year. So <laughs> watch that, Daddy. Do you think O.J. did it? 
No, of course not. You know Uncle Juice. You know he would never hurt anyone. Well, Mom says he did. Look, your mother... Your mother's very emotional right now, and I understand that. She lost Nicole. We all lost Nicole. But she shouldn't be talking to you about these things. Why? The entire universe is talking about it, and people ask me about it all day. I mean, he is my godfather. That's right, he is, and your Uncle Juice is... Uncle Juice is a good man. In fact, I'm going to tell the whole world exactly that on TV. Barbara Walters called me. Barbara Walters? Yeah. Uh -huh. She knows you? She talked to Mom and Bruce, too. Bruce is famous. He won the Olympics. Bruce and Mom sell five masters on TV, so that means that they're both famous. Dad, why are you famous? I'm not. Li listen, guys, listen to me. Look, you know your grandparents. You know me and what I try to pass on to you. We are Kardashians. And in this family, being a good person and a loyal friend is more important than, than being famous. Fame is fleeting. It's hollow. It means nothing at all without a virtuous heart. So at this moment in theaters, you can see Tom Hiddleston as Hank Williams Jr., Ethan Hawke as Chet Baker, and Don Cheadle as Miles Davis in three separate movies. And uh, Don Cheadle actually directed that last one. Um, these are three biopics that are out right now. Richard, you've seen Miles Ahead only, which is the one that Cheadle is in. Um, but this movie and all of these movies kind of have a fascinating history. Miles Ahead premiered in this huge way at the New York Film Festival last fall. Um, but it's only coming out now, and it's kind of a quiet release. March as you've discussed, is a really interesting and weird time to release a movie. Is that Why is this happening to Miles Ahead? Why isn't this coming out in the fall as like some big Oscar biopic? I don't really know. I think my, my only guess is that it's a, it's, a, it's a peculiar movie. And I don't mean that um, in a negative sense. It's just the intent behind it is to be less of a biopic that's kind of programmatically going through beats in Miles Davis's life and more told in the sort of vernacular or tone of his music. So it's this weird sort of caper story, actually, where Miles Davis is trying to get some tapes back, some recordings that no one else has heard that someone steals from a party. And so it's kind of like there's like there's guns and chasing and stuff like that, which I don't know, think really happened in Miles Davis's life. But it's it, so it's kind of like an experimental meta kind of movie. Um which maybe explains why it's not getting a bigger release because it's kind of an art house thing. But I think the the shame of that is that it's anchored really beautifully by this performance by Don Cheadle, an actor who has been Oscar nominated before for Hotel Rwanda and is one of our best actors, I think. And maybe that performance at least deserves a better showcase. I could see it being the kind of thing that gets a bigger screener push later in the year. Mm. Um, but I think the movie is perhaps alienating enough. It pl well, I saw it at the New York Film Festival at the premiere and it, and it played very well there. But that's an audience of New Yorkers in Lincoln Center. And it, it you know, it, it's, and it's the premiere. You're excited to be there. And he would Cheadle and, and the rest of the cast and crew were up in this balcony and, you know, they sort of shine the spotlight on them and everyone claps. And, you know, it was exciting in that regard. And it felt very New York-y and you know people are into the movie who see it but um, I think it, it has a a bit of a, a steep climb to get people to see it because it's it's a little bit strange. You can see what Don Cheadle's trying to do which is not make the millionth standard right. you know biopic and like oh great we got a heroin addict uh, you know guy who's brilliantly talented gets addicted to heroin uh, becomes an abusive jerk <laughs> like no one needs We've to see that, that again so We've many seen times. You know, enough I have, damn times I have to confess that music biopics are probably my least favorite genre uh, you know sort of as a, as surveyed uh, in, in in movies so it's, it takes a lot for me honestly to really engage with one and I did with Miles Ahead uh, I should mention it's also directed by Don Cheadle um, so and but he wasn't originally attached to it apparently 
someone related to Miles Davis said that John, that oh and Don Cheadle's going to play the part. I think it was part. at the it was at the Hall of Fame. Um, right, that's what it was. When when uh, Miles Davis was inducted, I guess in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and his son said. Son. Oh well, you know, get ready for the biopic starring Don Cheadle, and that was the first that Don Cheadle had heard of that, and everyone had already been saying, "When are you going to play Miles Davis?" Because there's this kind of surface resemblance, right? And he was like, "All right, I guess I'm making this movie," but it still (laughs) took uh, something like ten years, yeah. Yeah. And I think probably, I'm guessing that a lot of that was hesitation. Like, am I really going to remake? you know, Clint Eastwood's bird or coal miner's daughter at some level. Well, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just like the standard. We've seen it a hundred times. Walk the line. Like it's, yeah. it's a familiar thing. Well, the, and, and it is a familiar thing, but I think we should also mention that there is a rich, long history of these kind of movies doing very well at the Oscars. You know, yes. you mentioned walk the line, you mentioned coal miner's daughter, which won their, you know, leads uh, Oscars. Uh, you can go to sort of even more esoteric examples. Gary Busey has an Oscar nomination for the Buddy Holly story. You know, yeah. um, there's a long list of this. So uh, when I saw Miles Ahead at the New York Film Festival back in uh, October, I sort of assumed that this was sort of anointed already for like Cheadle to make the awards run. This March release that's been very quiet, like you said, Katie, does throw that off for me a little bit. But um, I don't think that we should count him out of any conversation. Well, mm. on a note on the decade long it took to make him, um, uh, Don Cheadle has said that he was basically required to add a white a prominent white part in this movie to get it made. It was a financial oh, imperative right. in his work. Oh, that's so, great. Yes. That's yeah, great yeah. to hear. So he brought in Ewan McGregor as a Rolling Stone reporter. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, yeah he did. Yeah, and, and that's... Love, by the way, I love that Ewan McGregor can get a movie made. Um, and and it's because can't, people, and Miles Davis No, but I, I'll tell you why. It's weird. It's because of um, Star Wars, yeah, of and course. it's because people know him o- overseas. Big mm-hmm. time. The way that yeah. indie films get financed is yeah. through uh, foreign sales estimates. And it's so weird to me, but just just because of the prequels, because everyone in the world has seen the prequels. Are you suggesting that's why Ewan McGregor is playing Jesus in a new movie <laughs> called Last Days in the I Desert? would say yeah. most Ewan McGregor movies, God bless Ewan McGregor, he's yeah. great. Yeah. I, I guess Train Spotting too. At some level, it's it's a mix Moulin of those Rouge, two. maybe? Who knows? Yeah. I um, think it's probably the prequels. Let's uh, yeah. I think it is. We have to not only cure racism in the United States, we have to cure it overseas mm-hmm. for the indie financing thing. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. all the financing is built on foreign sales estimates. You hear that, Cheryl Boone Isaacs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, Cheryl. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know how we can help. So as we said, we haven't seen I Saw the Light, which is uh, about Hank Williams Jr. or Born to be Blue, which is about Chet Baker. But uh, I Saw the Light had a really interesting premiere at Toronto last year where basically it had the kind of this had Oscar buzz thing that we've talked about where it had this big, you know, big date premiering at Toronto. People were very excited about it. Tom Hiddleston's very popular. And then people walked out of the screening and just kind of sighed. And then that's how we've kind of led to this kind of release. It's a it's a very different response than Miles Ahead got the way you're describing it, Richard. It really wasn't that well received. Um, so in that way, like they're both coming out around the same time, but seem to have very different fates. Like I don't know that anyone's going to be trying to bring back I Saw the Light come October with screeners. Yeah, and it's a strange thing with I Saw the Light where going into Toronto back in September, I think a lot of people had that big on their radar because this was really Tom Hiddleston's you know, sort of post, I mean, he's not done with those movies, but, you know, post-Marvel Avengers Mm -hmm. starring awardsy biopic role. And then it kind of didn't do much. And so I find myself kind of retroactively being surprised that this is the project he chose. I mean, he's a British guy. I don't know what his connection emotionally to Hank Williams Jr. really is. I mean, I've seen clips of him singing and he's he's good and it's it's a good approximation of, of Williams's voice. And so, I don't know, I'm sure there was plenty that was interesting to him about it, but it feels curiously small. Uh, for a sort of 
Hiddleston vehicle that a lot of people, the Tumblr in particular, has been <laughs> has been clamoring for, you know. And uh, nearly everyone who's reviewed all of these movies has said that performances, including Hiddleston's, are really good. So even though Tom Hiddleston's uh, I Saw the Light vehicle didn't work out for audiences, I think it did prove what he can do, which maybe is, you know, that's why uh, Don Cheadle fights to make Miles Ahead for so long or Ethan Hawke fights to make Born to be Blue. But so that you can just show what you can do, because as an actor, you are constantly like getting put into movies that are going to get financed overseas and might not give you a good part. So if you have these roles, even if the audiences for them are limited, you know that you can show them to people and that you can build a career based on this. You know, and I think a lot of times these music biopics are, are a labor of love of somebody who's just, you know, obsessed with this artist and their music and mm-hmm. wants to like play them get to get to play them yeah. I don't know if that's the case with Hiddleston I, I get the sense that's more the case with Ethan Hawke uh, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure yeah this is what the uh, the purge money gets you is that you get to make your, <laughs> yeah. your Chet Baker movie sure you know? I mean honestly yeah. you know and they're not fine. just in it for yeah. the money like they're trying yeah. to do things that speak to them yeah. uh, they being uh, actors you know and, and, and a lot of actors like Ethan Hawke's at the part of his career where he can do one for money and one for love and he's done it very shrewdly actually yeah. there, there's an interesting maybe art article to be written about uh, how well Ethan Hawke has managed his sort of financial career. Yeah. Um, and I, maybe it's like goes without saying, but just because something doesn't fit the template of Oscar and appeal to that very problematic group of people, as right. we've discussed, you know, doesn't mean it's not worth kind of taking a flyer and trying an oh, artistic course. thing and making a movie that well, that you believe in. I think as Love and Mercy proved to us last year, you can have these movies that open early in the year and really build slowly for a really long time. Like, I hadn't seen Love and Mercy for a long time, except for, I think, you guys telling me I ought to see it because <clears throat> John Cusack's performance was so outstanding. So Paul you, Dano, even more so. Yeah, exactly. Both I mean, them. I think yeah. both of them proved a lot of what they can do and yeah. it kind of built the movie on that word of mouth. And we had Elizabeth Banks on the show because she was also really remarkable in it. So yeah, I could see I could see the miles ahead timing be having to do with like a let's smoke. just get let this thing percolate for a long time. Uh, whereas the uh, Hank Williams one feels a little bit more just like okay, it's time to put it out. We well, gotta put it out at some point. We'll have to see what happens with the um, the Nina Simone biopic that everyone's so excited for. Yeah, Does that cool. have a release date? Or uh, I uh, in theory, I think it's later this year. But I have yeah. to say. <laughs> I was so outraged by Twitter that day. I just started hearing about the complaints and everything. This is the Nina Simone biopic starring Zoe Saldana, who some people think is, uh, people, she painted her face darker. People, to yeah, we're attacking her for darkening her face and wearing a prosthetic, uh, some prosthetic facial features. And I was like, wow, great. This is like the level we've come to with the circular firing squad on Twitter where we're shaming a black actress for darkening her skin, you know, to play another, a black singer. And then I saw the picture and I was like, okay, now I get it, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, picture is worth a thousand <laughs> tweets on that one. What's wild is we still, like, it wasn't that long ago that Angelina Jolie got an Oscar nomination for darkening her skin and wearing a wig to play uh, Daniel Pearl's wife in A Mighty Heart. And, uh, no one gave her hell for that at the hey. time. Yeah. Well, it's a different era. Twitter didn't uh, exist. That's so. what Emma, Emma Stone thought she was in the clear. Oh, boy. <laughs> 
So now we're going to close with a new but still very silly segment as we uh, are so far from actually being able to predict this year's Oscars. We want to look back at Oscars of the past and say what we would do with them if we were in charge. We're going to go back to the very recent past to kick this off. Uh, the 2014 Oscars, guys, who should have won Best Actor? Eddie Redmayne won it. Uh, who would you have given it to, Richard? Um, well, as you both know, I was a big Theory of Everything fan. Yes. Saw the premiere in Toronto, was in love with it. You know, there might be some personal bias where Eddie Redmayne is really beautiful and I'm in love with him. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, just some slight personal bias there. But um, honestly, of those five, I think he wins. I, I mm. still, I, I think that was a good win. Um, I was not a big Birdman fan, um, nor was I a fan as much as others of Steve Carell and Foxcatcher, uh, who I think were his main competition there. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm content, actually, with Redmayne. You know, what if he hadn't won, and then, and like Michael Keaton had won, who many people thought would have, then would Leo have won this year? Does that, is there a butterfly effect? Like, oh, everyone boy. thought Eddie Redmayne was overdue? The Redmayne of Ah, man, that's a good question. I know. That's, I, no. I, if if no. Leo no hadn't won, the world would have exploded by now. So. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, if Michael Keaton had won, that would be interesting to think about how that would have affected um, Spotlight. Spotlight. Yeah, totally. I mean, it may have, have may have cut into its underdog status. It might, yeah, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to maybe uh, ill-advisedly remind the world of myself as the Foxcatcher supporter. Oh, yes. Um, I think Steve Carell was really amazing in that movie. And I think it'd be really interesting if Steve Carell had an Oscar. His career would be really different. I mean, I'm not even sure what he has going on next. I thought Foxcatcher deserved better than it got. I thought Channing Tatum probably deserved the nomination of that whole bunch, but he didn't get it. Um, Channing Tatum was amazing. He was amazing yes. in that movie. Yeah. I mean, Mark mm-hmm. Ruffalo got nominated, so he was wonderful, too, and supporting yeah. actor. Um, although I'm intrigued about what would happen if Bradley Cooper had won an Oscar for American Sniper, <laughs> just to like see what uh, would well, have happened. Well, I'm going to ill-advisedly remind the, the <laughs> table that I, I'm an American Sniper fan. I thought it was a good movie. Um and Highest grossing movie of 2014. Like, it's yeah. astonishing. I did think that he was very good in it, um, but I don't think it was as he was as stretching as hard as, no. as Eddie. No. Uh, and, and for what Eddie did, I, I think it started to look a little bit like shtick by the time you get to the Danish girl, but in theory of everything, what he, he that's is, an yeah. astonishing transformation yeah, I, that he I, does on screen. In truth, I don't have any problem with Eddie Redmayne winning. And <laughs> I, I hope his career, I hope that Fantastic Beasts were to find them as, you know, maybe a one-off franchise thing and he goes back to doing some really interesting work because uh, i'll ask him when i get home tonight oh well he, i gotta i gotta <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more question before we uh, close what would steve carell what would you cast steve carell if you were his agent and you were like all right it's time you've been nominated over and over again what's the movie that you're gonna do where you finally like it take oh, it home track God. down spike jones and charlie kaufman and get them to make something for you like yeah. an adaptation like yes. something kind of oh, or um, Eternal Sunshine where it's funny but also sad oh and, my god yeah, like the, the Jim Carrey transformation exactly wow. yes. That's like what Dan I in do. real yeah. life but yeah. uh, but like quirky and, and yeah because yeah. the, the challenge for him is always going to be the, however serious he gets there's a little bit of that like the office and that yeah, I, the I, dancing I in the background I can't walk away from it even in, in Big Short which I thought he was really good in I, there was there were moments where I was like oh it's Michael Scott like talking high finance you yeah. know yeah. like and, I thought, I, and, and even something uh, this is gonna sound maybe silly but like his hair in the big short was a little weird just well, was like hair. funny it was like hair. he had like funny hair and yeah. that was not helpful yeah. whereas in Foxcatcher that was as close I mean with all the prosthetic the makeup and everything but then he was so kind of you know enclosed in all that stuff I feel like that it became sure it was an incredibly controlled performance but I don't know 
that's not the full range of Steve Carell that you want to be like, here's your Oscar, See, buddy. I you did it. I thought that movie played really interestingly off the whole Michael Scott thing of this guy who wants to be liked and who wants to be in the center of things. Sure. John DuPont is a really similar yes. kind of character who just does it in this really creepy and eventually homicidal way. Well, that's how The Office ends. You didn't see the finale. <laughs> that's true. He comes back to... Uh, Shoots Jim. <laughs> uh, so we'll continue uh, re-arbitrating the Oscars as uh, the summer goes on. And uh, Yeah, maybe... this won't get any of us in trouble. This is a great <laughs> no. idea, Katie. Thank you. Which, who doesn't deserve their Oscar? Let's ask Vanity Fair. <laughs> that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, please review us and rate us on iTunes if you have a chance. It really helps us find new listeners. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, talking about People versus O.J. Simpson and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, and you can follow all of us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and Mike... Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced and edited by Sam Dingman, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for iTunes review we would least like to get goes to Mike Hogan. Everybody in this thing has has yeah. problems. <laughs>